This is the New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegas. And this is the, the masculine urge to episode, wherein we, uh, we are going to discuss the, um, the masculine urge to make good art basically and um in this vein there uh there have been a a couple of uh recent kind of news hooks here one of which is an article from uh the the new york times by a um a non-binary uh (laughs) writer uh called this isn't your old toxic masculinity and um, this is um, this is something that we both kind of stumbled across, and um, it's an article that is um, saying how um, the recent um, emphasis, or you know, not recent, but like uh, in the past few decades or what have you, for men to express their emotions has become uh has become toxic but like not in a way that it like men are becoming pussies and that's a bad thing that's not what they mean uh what what this what and when i say they uh i guess i'm i'm you know uh I'm <laughs> using the appropriate yes. pronoun technically correct yes uh well that's not what they mean here what what they mean is that um men by uh, sharing um, on uh, stuff like incel forums and stuff like that and legitimately talking about their problems in a uh, in this feminist um, uh, and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, paused out society that we, we live in mm-hmm. right now, uh, that actually men actually talking about their problems is um, uh toxic and um yes it's or it's taken a toxic turn uh supposedly um the new york times piece uh i guess is by someone called alex McElroy, uh not a writer i've ever heard of but he or they um you know basically as you said uh get into uh, I guess it, what is it called? Yeah, this isn't your old toxic masculinity. It has taken an insidious new form. 
um, gets into kind of your uh, typical post-Gamergate spiel about how, you know, just uh, about the toxicity uh, of the sort of beta character um, who I, 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 maybe this is an oversimplification, but like uh, maybe in the 90s through the early 2000s had kind of gotten a little bit of a pass uh, by feminists, so it kind of assumed to be a kind of ally, and then in more recent years, and, and over the past about 10 years now, uh, the notion of the sort of nerdy or, or beta male as uh, as possessing a, a beta rage, and, a, uh, and perhaps even more toxic rage, their own toxic masculinity, um, has kind of come much more into vogue. Uh, that's been the case for a few years. This uh, article, this op-ed from the New York Times kind of pushes uh, The Rock a little further down the path by, um, you know, saying even even post-Me Too, so now we're talking about the last three or four years, um, there's been a noticeable uptick in, 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 I guess, this kind of behavior or in men acting in, in these kinds of ways. Uh, they, you know, they definitely use the I word talking about incel forums and, and what have you uh, quite, quite a bit. Um, but also, uh, more generally, it's, it's more generally, uh, an attempt to sort of sanction and police. It's like, uh, obviously the notion that men should open up and be more vulnerable is, uh, is a talking point of the left. Um, but now that we're post that moment, now it's time to police how exactly, how and when, uh, that that happens, and you know what what is okay to say and what not to say. It was my read on the article. So yeah, crucially, men are you know being told to be more vulnerable and express their their fears. But when they do so, um, they uh, they sometimes uh, convey uh, politically uh, inappropriate ideas and uh, politically inconvenient truths, and so. Um, it's you know the they want you to uh, they want you to express yourself and vul- be vulnerable, but uh, not to say anything that is uh, offensive, and thus to, to not actually express yourself and not actually be vulnerable. So the right. the actual problems of men in society today of um, you know being uh, in, in a- I mean, so, yeah. I mean, like honestly, uh, not that I, not that you or I are incels, but I mean, we can talk about uh, you know the sex recession. It's uh, you know the the numbers show this to be real. I mean, there's there's other issues too that the article gets into, but basically, you know, there is a real problem uh, with men in society. And no, it probably isn't all women's fault or anything. I'm not necessarily co-signing on to you know the 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 most extreme incel rhetoric here but nevertheless that there is a problem um with 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 the sexual recession affecting men especially um and basically uh the the left really can't talk about that or they have to put on kid gloves and before they even really begin to get into the meat of the issue they have to give all kinds of disclaimers about how this isn't a real issue or how you know men should not expect sex and how there's well, how 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 90% of it's toxic i mean the problem is the sexual revolution and its aftermath has been a really a bad thing for <laughs> um, society and, and for men and for women 
and especially so, for like well, for, you know the middle class like this kind of like the middle class of beta males you know what i mean yeah uh, especially for yeah kind of average joe so like it's it's been a bad thing and so but the, that is it's you know a basic pillar of our neoliberal and you know liberal order that you know the sexual revolution was a glorious good thing that gives you know women control over their sexual lives and 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 gives men the ability to you know also you know not conform to those pesky societal norms of having a wife and kids (laughs) which uh i mean so like essentially this is whole you know post-war liberal project of you know destroying um social order rests upon you know the sexual revolution and then other you know various uh revolutions that took place in the 60s -hmm. and uh so to express any misgiving i mean like legitimately half of all men more than half of all men are probably you know doing much worse than they would have 50 years ago and the same goes for women because a hypergamous you know dating a hypergamous society is really only good for the top you know tier of men and women so Mm -hmm. it um so legitimately there are many people who are dissatisfied but the the they have created a problem for themselves by saying wanting men and these you know these so-called beta men or whatever to you know express their fears express their and they thought that these men were going to say things like oh uh, i i feel so hurt when you know alpha dudes call me a pussy but no it's like oh i feel so hurt that i'm i never get laid because society is fucked (laughs) that's not that's not what they expected the you know men who share their emotions to say but well i don't know Uh, yeah i i don't know what they expected but it's certainly not what they wanted and I mean, this this article was interesting for me. Uh, again, the timeline is interesting for me because it specifically says post me too. So it's specifically uh, the last three four years in which I've been much more cued into this stuff than I would have been before. And it, there was an interesting there was an interesting moment, uh, kind of between twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen, sort of post Trump but pre me too. Um, where there was, I recall, a lot of soul-searching going on among certain, probably in most cases, somewhat smarter uh, or more more open-minded even, ironically, uh, factions of the left and of the liberal establishment where they were talking about uh, such notions as the future of whiteness uh, was one and also like the future of masculinity. Uh, given the sort of shock uh, of t- Trump's victory, uh, for them, uh, but also before uh, things like Me Too and then later the 2020, you know, BLM stuff sort of like re remade the stakes so that you, that showing any degree of, of, of any that the, the, those, the, you know, Me Too and BLM, these sort of astroturfed, I think, uh, social events sort of made it back to the position we're in now where you really can't even talk about this stuff. If, if there's any sense that you're tunneling towards, uh, you know, the Trumpists, uh, you know, you're basically seen uh, as a traitor and as is evil. We're kind of back to that. But I do recall in, in um, you know, 2016, 2017, there was a moment where where certain people were, were talking about these kinds of notions, such as uh, the future of whiteness and the future of masculinity. 
this article vaguely reminded me uh, of some. It was probably also a New York Times op-ed. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, but but some it might have been called "The Boys Aren't Okay." I'll, I'll look it up after this. That's uh, oh, this call. I, there, there, I think I know that was I think an Atlantic article. You mean probably an Atlantic, yeah. yeah, Atlantic, the Atlantic, which I, it's not a publication that I like necessarily, but they're 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 they're, they're sort of the king of. They uh, have like a good right, let a good one the, through. There's so more nuance. In fact, I, this this the uh, the so-called sex recession that I'm citing, I still think there's an Atlantic article. It's probably the best source about that. So yeah, the Atlantic, you know, will will acknowledge some of these things, even though they're pretty squarely left establishment. Uh, but uh, yeah, I recall that that Atlantic article. There's there was other ones as well, and there was this, uh, you know, the conversation w- was it was addressed. You know that that men especially younger men, you know, are, are doing a lot less well than they once were, whether because of the, the incel thing or because of demonstrable facts like that they're not going to college at nearly the same rate, that they're not succeeding, that they're dropping out. Um, these things were addressed, and these things have only gotten worse over the past few years, so we're probably going to see more of these op-eds like Alex McElroy's because the problem is becoming so impossible to ignore. Yeah. Um, but... Here's the thing. These articles, I, I appreciate them. And I, I shouldn't even say that because I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm trying to appeal to New York Times op editors. It's not. It's not on my. It's not like high up on my agenda to do that. But on some level, I appreciate where they're coming from. What they're trying to do is to open up this conversation about you know, oh, being a man is not just a construct of privilege. And being white is not just a construct of privilege, perhaps even more controversially. Um, I appreciate, you know, the the sort of the addressing of, of that line. And, you know, yeah. before I got red-pilled, quote-unquote, uh, I was very, and I, you know, and I was still sort of liberal and, and, and trying to make sense of all of this, um, you know, th- that kind of thinking appealed to me. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm case in point that... Uh, if there's people out there who think that this kind of thing can be a slippery slope, yes, it can be. Uh, but uh, yeah, basically, um, I'm just, you know giving a lot of context here. But the the one thing that that op eds like this one that we're talking about, and like you know those older pieces that I'm talking about, the one thing that they'll never do is get over. They'll never they'll they'll like go so far in acknowledging what the problems might be. And how there's nuance to them, but they'll never let go of the basic premise that uh, you know masculinity is 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 basically a pathology, and that it's something that should be reduced in modern society. That masculinity is itself the problem. It's like yes, we'll acknowledge your pain, but you have to acknowledge that your pain comes from masculinity, not a lack of masculinity, but rather that your problem comes from buying into you know in yeah. their in their parlance buying into like this social construct of privilege that you're unwilling to let go of um you know they can come across as very empathetic people willing to you know maybe even talk to an incel but they'll never let go of that premise and um well maybe some of them will but they'll never do it in the new york times yeah um so it's a fundamental philosophical disagreement that i have so i (laughs) yeah no I, i think crucially the it is true that things are getting worse and the uh the types the the tenor of the conversation and like what you're allowed to say 
is uh you know less and less so like now like you know men are not really allowed to legitimately complain about their problems at all uh and and as you note maybe 10 years ago there was more kind of lip service paid to it uh but i in in the past even before that you um you you did have and this is kind of going to segue into the main topic of the episode of the the masculine urge to episode <laughs> uh, you, you had mainstream entertainment that dealt with uh masculinity in a nuanced and complex way that looked at the the positives and looked right. at the negatives and so what we're going to talk about on the pod today mostly is um neil abute's uh first film his uh, and uh, he, one of his very first plays which was adapted into a film by him by the called in the company of men and uh this uh, it made a splash when it came out in the late 90s in 1997 and it it is kind of a, a dark comedy a uh, a comedy that um examines uh well, literally uh male in the male company and mm -hmm. uh male camaraderie and uh and also it's a play on words because it's about the office place so it's about uh yeah. office politics and how masculinity interacts with office politics and what i think is really interesting here is that and just to you know jump circle back for a moment these types of movies there used to be a, a lot of them so like you had in the company of men other ones that come to mind are glenn gary glenn ross uh, by course, david mamet yeah uh, yeah and that's probably one that more we'll get into the in the company of men which uh, for as much as I love Glengarry Glenn Ross, I think in the company of men, it may be even more riotously funny. But for our audience, more of them are probably going to be familiar with Glengarry Glenn Ross. So if you want to talk about, you know, the, the tone of in the company of men, is very uh, I don't know what was going on. I don't know what was going on in the world of theater in the 80s or the 90s. But you have a few of these people like Mamet and Neil Labute who um, were writing these plays that explored masculinity in really interesting ways. But, but go yeah. on. I just wanted to, you know. So, Note that the tone is very much the same. Oh, yeah, uh, no, very no, similar. very, yeah. yeah. Mamet and Labute kind of like, uh, I'm not going to say interchangeable, but stylistically very similar playwrights. Thematically. Similar, you know, yeah. Thematically. Yeah. And uh, so, like, a couple of others, your friends and neighbors, that's other, another Neil Labute one, hmm. Roger Dodger. That was a film I, I actually don't know who wrote it, but it, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's another. I don't know if I've seen that one. But yeah. I mean, with sharks, which uh, I think we're probably both familiar with. It's, uh, no, actually. Okay, but so swimming with sharks yeah. is uh, it's uh, kind of a portrait of masculinity at work in Hollywood entertainment uh, industry huh. uh, stuff. So, so stuff that's uh, you know we we have some familiarity with. Right. Not going to uh, much great detail there. But uh, so what I, I really wanted to say here is that mainstream entertainment used to deal with these issues. And now you, you want to see a movie on Netflix or whatever that, you know, deals with masculinity in an honest way that looks at the positive and negatives. You won't. The only place you're going to find it is stuff like, you know, uh, Frog Twitter 
in cell forums. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you're, you're going to find it in outside of the beaten path. You're not going to find it in mainstream entertainment. You're going to find it on pods sure. like ours. You're going to find it on like weird, you know, web, uh, you know, videos and YouTube series and, and stuff like that. And so, like, you, you maybe Joe Rogan. <laughs> just throwing it out there. Oh, no, I true. mean, that's yeah, the Rogan. most. Yeah. But that's a podcast. You know, podcasts are kind of like this last bastion of, uh, of, of I don't know, right wing discourse. That's another topic. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, and I'll be a normie and say, um, in addition to all the films that you listed, um, I, I'll be a normie and say even some more mainstream ones um, also kind of do this. Um, and I, it's it almost hurts how normie it is to say, but, you know, American Psycho and Fight Club and even, um, what's it called? American Beauty, although that oh, no. one ends in a sort of... Yeah, I mean, like... Uh, some, some would say that's pretty paused, but nevertheless... Uh, even so, you know the, the the films and plays you mentioned are, are kind of the slightly, um, you know, slightly more down the down the, down the ladder uh, cultural artifacts. But even some of the really mainstream shit at that time, and and but but those three movies I, I listed: American Psycho, American Beauty, and Fight Club. Um, are I think they're all if they're not all from the same year, they're from the same like two years, like yeah. nineteen ninety eight through two thousand. For whatever reason, that's a high watermark for exploring some of this stuff. I, I don't know what it is, uh, but I, but you know what? As much as a normie as it makes me to say, uh, I do like all three of those movies. Oh no, and, they're they're really good. Uh, Fight Club is probably one of my favorite movies. I loved it when I saw course. it. Yeah, I, of course. Yeah, and it's you know it's just like I mean I think every uh, you know man from the uh, every like millennial uh, had a Tyler Durden phase where they're <laughs> like you know. Uh, like yeah, I, I I'm kind of like Tyler <laughs> yeah. or something like that, <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, like it's they used to make movies that explored masculinity in nuanced ways, and you know it's interesting to note that um, uh, Fight Club ultimately, uh, you know, it concluded that Tyler Durden was you know a, a toxic character. And he, you know, like the, the main character literally had to like, you know, essentially kill himself to get rid of Tyler Durden. And right. American Psycho, like it's, it was. Well, yeah, it's American yeah. Psycho. You know, he's a, he's a obvious villain. And then, as I said, you know, American Beauty is fa- fairly liberal in its ultimate messaging. But the messaging doesn't even necessarily matter as much as the basic and honest exploration exactly that occurs. And as you said, that's what is missing um, in in modern entertainment. I mean, you don't have that nuanced. Uh, you don't have that nuanced villain. You also don't really have that nuanced hero either. By the way, so what you're left with is there's still a lot of very masculine sort of testosterone. Well, there's at least some masculine testosterone laden films that come out um you know whatever uh what's his name why is it not coming to me who played qui-gon jinn in star wars oh uh, liam neeson uh yeah whatever the liam neeson movie like yeah. these movies still get made but they're, like they're just kind of your basic bitch uh man does something heroic yeah. You know, he's an obvious alpha. And then on the other hand, you have uh, what I like to call, what maybe we've even called on this podcast, the Guillermo del Toro style villain. And I, you know, um, Shape of Water was a horrible movie, but I mean, what a... 
proud what to it, say it, I've it, never it. seen it. Yeah, I've only saw half of it, but I mean, the, the villain in the the, the white male uh, blonde uh, villain in that is just such a masterpiece of, um, of of fulfilling this archetype of the straw man uh, villain uh, of of a completely unnuanced, cartoonish, um, you know, white male uh, oppressor, basically. Yeah. Um, that uh, I think <laughs> has, in my mind, has has. Uh, has warranted, uh, you know, the invention of the expression, the Guillermo del Toro style villain. And so contrast um, that with a, another uh, white, uh, blonde, white male, uh, I, I don't know if we're going to call him villain, but the main character in, in the company of men, he uh, his name is Chad. And right. he, it's, uh, you know, it's very, because we were watching this together. And when yes. we noticed that, like, I, I had seen it before, you, you had not seen it yet, and when I, I had forgotten that the character's name was Chad, but um, this is 1997, it's before all the Chad memes, before everything, but, like, wow, did he, did they, did he get it right? This, because this Chad mm-hmm. character is, you know, the kind of archetypal Chad in, in the company of men. Wouldn't you say so? For sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's played by Aaron Eckhart, Eckhart, who is uh, very, um, yeah, very, very masculine, very blonde. I think he just got cast in another movie, by the way, and he still looks pretty good at, like, 60, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Very, very chadly guy. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, I don't even, yeah, you were saying you don't even think, when we watched it, you hadn't even remembered that his name was Chad, but, I mean, he's, um, he's straight out of the meme pages. Uh, but he sort of plays opposite a more beta uh, character. I don't remember the actor's name. No, yeah. But, I, I, don't, uh, I mean, do you want to yeah, you know the play a little better than me? Briefly yeah. run down the plot for everyone. So the plot is these two guys, uh, Chad and uh, Howard, they're, um, they're both in middle management. Howard is technically Chad's boss, but uh, Howard is clearly the beta to Chad's alpha. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, is, but, but there is an odd relationship where there is a technical hierarchy and that he's kind of Chad's boss. So Chad kind of defers to him uh, formally, but not actually. And so they, they have a, a kind of friendship, but it's, it's clear that, um, you know, that one character, Howard, is the, uh, the, titular boss and chad is kind of like the actual alpha and so in that context of that type of friendship they um they are both uh feeling burned by women chad's uh wife left him and uh howard's uh fiance left him and so they um bond over a shared plan to find a woman and they will both date her at the same time and seduce her and uh and then when she falls in love with uh one of them uh they will break up with her at both at the same time and then leave her uh, you know heartbroken and this will you know make them feel good because you know hurting people can sometimes <laughs> make you feel good <laughs> not uh, not that i recommend that but um yeah and specifically seeking revenge against women in this uh elliot rogers sort of way 
Exactly. Yeah. And that's a good, you know, like actually for, you know, all that kind of incel rage and, and stuff like that. This is an excellent, you know, um, you, you can see the current for it even, you know, even then. And you can see that, you know, they both um, resent kind of the, the you know, the, 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 the aftermath of the sexual revolution and they, they resent the realities of the dating marketplace because they've, you know, both been, you know, left and, you know, probably that wouldn't have happened in an earlier era. And so they, they want to, mm -hmm. you know, they, they feel that Elliot Roger resentment and they want to, um, they want to take it out on this, uh, you know, anonymous woman who they will find. And they find her in the office where they work, and she is uh, to to make it even more um, kind of extreme. She's deaf, and uh, so that that there's a plot element that she can't, um, you know, she can't hear them, uh, and she speaks <laughs> she speaks uh, in a, a rather funny manner. And uh, to, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if gosh, uh, if you want to talk about another thing that would not make it into a movie, it's a uh, actress who can hear just fine um, doing. And I, God, I, I, I don't want to get us canceled here, but I, you know, Chad in the movie calls it her uh, her retard voice. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> that's the way to put it. Voice. That's totally <laughs> fine. Yeah. Uh, it's a quote from the movie, and uh, but but the actress uh, is not deaf and does not have that voice. So uh, that's another somewhat humorous element that would not have made it uh, into a movie today. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's the setup, um, and I don't think we're really going to be able to talk about it without sort of spoiling. Oh yeah, a no, we gotta it goes. we gotta spoil it. I mean, so to if 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 you're like this. me. Right. If you're like me, and, you know, Dan explained this movie to me um, maybe six months ago or so, and, and I immediately thought it sounded like a very hilarious setup. Uh, so if you share that reaction and want to make sure that you actually see the movie, um, you can turn this off now. But we're, we're going to have to kind of reveal what I guess you could call the bigger twist um, at the end of the movie uh, in order to, to really yeah. go forth. So what, what happens is uh, they both start dating this deaf woman and uh, perhaps, you know, somewhat predictably, she falls for Chad and she uh, does not really fall for Howard. And it um, results it, in it plays out a, pretty much how, how situation where yeah. Howard, uh, you know, in, he... Um, falls in love with her and he's pissed off that you know he was supposed to be like in league with chad and they were going to break up with her at the same time but he um he wants this woman and she has chosen chad over him so he you know he thought he was going to get revenge but really he's just getting punched in the face again and so right i mean inadvertently it basically plays out exactly how someone like Hartiste would have predicted um it yeah it starts off and in many ways is all about hurting this deaf girl from their office but in you know inadvertently or as we'll see perhaps not totally inadvertently it's also a little social experiment you know you have a woman who's date is who's dating two men consecutively how does that go who comes out on top and it basically plays out uh, you know, and she's not some, you know, 
crazy hypergamous bitch or anything. <laughs> She's just a normal girl uh, who's deaf. Um, but she ends up, you know, going for Chad pretty hard. Yeah. And not going for Howard. And so it results in a pretty, uh, you know, hilarious scene where Chad, um, you know, breaks up with her and reveals, she, she, okay, now I'm, I'm getting the order wrong. Howard reveals the whole plot to her because he falls in love with her. And mm, uh, right. she doesn't want to believe him. She doesn't want to believe that Chad could be so evil. <laughs> and so <laughs> she confronts Chad she, about this after yeah. having slept with Chad. And uh, Chad uh, tries to, you know, pretend that it's not true. But then he uh, says something to the effect of, I can't even keep a straight face. And um, he <laughs> breaks it to funny. her. And, yeah. uh, and so she's, you know, heartbroken. And, and Howard is right. also, you know, heartbroken and, and, and aggrieved. Mm. And uh, so what the kind of the button on this movie, the kind of the denouement that uh, delivers the real punch is Howard, you know, he's very upset about the way this played out. He, uh, and he as a result gets, um, his work slips up, he gets demoted, Chad gets promoted over him. And he, uh, it, it works out very well for Chad, obviously. And so he's, he, for some reason, I forget why, stops by Chad's apartment. And um, he uh, he's there and he realizes that Chad's wife is in the apartment. And so he asks him, you know, did, did you get back together with her? And, you know, Chad uh, says, uh, no, she, we never broke up. Well, what are you talking about? And so it's a mm-hmm. very like that devilish moment the you know the the face of evil or whatever it becomes apparent that chad was lying from the very beginning it was <laughs> like either this was like something just for his own diversion for fun it was a way to own howard and own some random woman but i mean also it redounded to his personal benefit and he got a promotion because his boss went off the rails and you're right yeah so this this presents a really interesting uh, character study in the character of Chad because he, um, you know, obviously there's much to be said about his toxicity. He's literally, I just said, the face of evil. So, like, he hatches an evil plan to, you know, hurt his friend or hurt some random woman and, you know, um, uh, succeed. Uh, you know, to get his own to uh, you know achieve his own material advantage, but he also is undeniably you know a, a charming character and appealing character, and so this gets into the whole divide. And I, I you know, I think we're both familiar, and probably a lot of our audience is familiar with the Way of Men by Jack Donovan. Yeah, and so in, in that book, Donovan lays out. Uh, that, you know, being a man has nothing to do with being good. Nothing to do with it. Being a man boils down to uh, courage, mastery, um, and some some other shit. But, like, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) it boils down to, like, 
being good at uh, at dominating and you know honoring. Yeah, it's masculinity and the embodiment of masculinity and the embodiment of masculine power. Are, you know, Jack uh, Donovan is not necessarily an amoralist, uh, but first and foremost, masculinity—the main topic of his interest—is in his reckoning and in mine. I co-sign in this. You know, an amoral category. It's it's simply a type of power uh, you know i don't think it reduces to something as simple and cartoonish as uh the desire to dominate or as bat might say you know the desire to dominate space i think it's there's more to it than that but nevertheless it's basically a drive and basically um related to you know a physical sort of power you know the masculine urge to do this that and the other thing um when uh, Howard asks, I don't remember, yeah, I think he asked Chad, you know, why did you do it? Chad simply says, because I could. Oh, I forgot that line. That's a really good line. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the masculine urge to do shit like that. What is that all about? Um, you know, that's maybe one of the questions we're, we're dancing around. Um, and maybe we don't have an exact answer. Maybe it's for diversion, uh, pleasure, (laughs) what have you. Uh, but the main point is, it is a masculine urge, uh, and it is a yeah, no- notably masculine urge. No woman would ever do that, or even think of doing something like what Chad does in the uh, in in the company of men. Um, and so, in that way, uh, the play it you know becomes this exploration of uh, of masculinity in a sort of objective scientific. Not, no, I won't say scientific because you know we're in the realm of the humanities here, pretty squarely. But nevertheless, an exploration of uh, of masculinity and the, the masculine urge to to do certain things. And I, I have to again bring up American Psycho. You know, is is also you know uh, book book and movie uh, both uh, is 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 a great example of this too. Um, say what you will about Patrick Bateman, um, but his urges um, are all. Um, you know, very very masculine in nature. Whether it's his care routine, which you know, it was, the book was written by a gay man, and it seems a little metrosexual, perhaps. But nevertheless, even that, you know, is is a form of you know the masculine urge. Yeah. Um, so I think yeah. what this is boiling down to is, as you said, masculinity is an amoral thing. And it, like it, it is, uh, there are virtues and there are toxic elements of it, and the character of Chad presents uh, presents both. And this is something that we don't really see in cinema today, in entertainment today. We don't see the kind of uh, we don't see the tie between the toxic elements of masculinity and the virtuous elements because society today wants to claim that the virtues of masculinity aren't masculine. There's no such, I mean, after all, we live in a society that says there's no such thing as a man or a woman. So if there's no such thing as a man or a woman, there's no such thing as a masculine virtue. There's just like, there's being a Marvel hero being an MC, an MCU superhero who could be and have doesn't even need a dick to you know it doesn't even like, yeah. has no gonads yeah. it's an entirely <laughs> asexual proposition and so the the problem with these types of movies and why they're not made today is because they very correctly identify that masculine virtues strength 
mastery, even honor the you know this the desire to honor commitments because if you break your word, it reflects poorly on you as a man. That that type of uh, those virtues are inextricably tied to the vices of masculinity. And it's, right. it's all wound up in being a man. And that's something that society, um, you know, doesn't, they, I think 10, 20 years ago, yeah, they, they said like men are, you know, good at dominating, good at, you know, uh, taking risks, good at be, you know, being uh, kind of confident and what have you. But uh, that comes also with uh, assaults, rapes, uh, all, well, all sorts I, I, of, you know, <clears throat> antisocial behavior. And... Yeah, I mean, Dan, have you, uh, I know I'm more of the, the Palia head here, but have you heard the Camille Palia quote, you know, there's no... There is no female Jack the Ripper because there's no female Mozart. Uh, yes, yeah, and that's a very good one. <laughs> that's um, exactly. There's yeah the 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 basic connection between both. Um, you know, not that we even need to impose any moralism or other on this conversation, but but that there's a li- but certainly we can agree that Jack the Ripper's not a great guy and that Mozart. <laughs> Uh, you know, did great things, but uh, that there's a connection between the vice and the virtue, or the ugly and the beautiful, uh, to put it in purely aesthetic terms. Um, that these things are inextricably connected, and yeah, today again going back to that philosophical premise behind any of these modern attempts to talk about you know men being vulnerable, the basic premise is that you know all of the vices, all of the toxicity. Uh, the drive to dominate, and by the way, it's coming back to me now that 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 op-ed that we started this uh, conversation talking about. I think it ends. The last line is like, "Men need to let go of their drive to dominate." Um, so that's obviously, in, you know, an important concept here. Uh, but all all of that is is viewed as inherent to masculinity, uh, which I suppose they take to be a social construct or some such bullshit. Um, but none of the none of the virtues connected to that, you know, the um, you know the the drive to to protect, shall we say, or or to to thrive. You know, we don't even need to list these off for our audience necessarily. I think it's yeah, no, I it's mean, pretty it's... obvious not only to to a right wing audience, but to just any normal person. Um, and indeed, the general public is probably not as far left on this as the establishment would like. Uh, you know, can recognize um, you know the virtues of um, of masculinity. Yeah. And crucially, those virtues, and we, we discussed this in the notes, well, one of the things that makes this so despicable is that the, you know, society, the, the this liberal establishment, whatever, they um, want to, um, they, they want, they rely upon masculine virtues. They rely upon these virtues to essentially prop up society, but they don't want to give men their due they don't want to say like well this is this is something that men are good at and men do so like you know the from like you know the grunts who fight our wars and like obviously like you know most of our wars are you know currently misguided and probably shouldn't (laughs) be happening but uh you know nevertheless like yeah well but historically you know um regardless of what you think of you know the american project not even to get into that you know all of this around us is the product of wars that have been fought 
won. Absolutely. By men. <laughs> so, and you know, what revolt against the modern world, if you will, but you know, we we all live in it for now and enjoy at least some of some or many of its comforts. Yeah. And so like, you know, even like beyond wars, you know, stuff that like is like obviously like, like there is no one who is like, oh, uh, yeah, we shouldn't be putting out fires. So like firefighters, like there, there are not too many female firefighters because women can't carry bodies out of buildings. And that that is but I mean, not just that it's not just a physical thing. It's the courage to do it. The um, you know, there's there's a certain mas- masculine urge, the masculine urge to be a hero. <laughs> That is something that women just don't have. And we were talking about this before. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this in the context of um, how I, I think I said that, like, as a, you know, as a little kid, as, as a teen or whatever, I would find myself fantasizing about dying in war. And that's just it's like totally insane. Like, why would you fantasize about dying? Like, that's, you you know, that's, but not in a way like I was suicidal. I was not. Like, I fantasized about the honor and the glory of, you know, dying for one's country or dying for one's tribe or or whatever. And when I have told, misguidedly perhaps, told women about (laughs) this, uh, they, you know, they just don't understand it at all. Like, well, why would you like that's that's why would you like fantasize about that's like a terrible thing that like if you know if it happened would be horrible but like men we we do and this is the there's the obvious evolutionary reason for this um you you do need men to want on some deep level to sacrifice themselves for the group and have that kind of like um that suicidal courage and yeah. that is something that is very useful from a group evolutionary point of view perspective women just don't have it and our societies are built upon it and continue to you know use it and utilize it and you know if if not in our wars and you know firefighters and um you know in in cops you know breaking up disputes and stuff uh like and obviously like you know uh policing today like god is there any profession that gets you know less respect than cops yeah. right now. I mean, obviously the thin blue line stuff. Like there, there is a side of the right that you know backs cops, uh, you know, firmly. Yeah. And there, there's a huge you know uh, question about uh, federal law enforcement versus <laughs> local law enforcement right. on our side of yeah. the internet. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's anyone who thinks that like the the average beat cop who you know is like you know stop some homeless person from like you know brutalizing someone is like is a bad guy like there there are people who do think that but not you know not on our side of twitter generally yeah yeah so like yeah society relies upon the courage of men strength of men and even like garbage men like you know men who literally yeah no even um yeah and and coal miners and all these things like that you know one of the kind of mra men's rights activists 1.0 talking points and i'm not a big fan of that sort of uh paulie lom type crowd i think that's the guy's name but um, some of some of their basic points about how how men have um, not only the most heroic jobs but also the shittiest jobs, um, and there's no drive to to equalize representation in those jobs. Uh, that's always been, I, I think, a pretty good point. Uh, it kind of underscores, uh, you know, 
yeah. the silliness uh, of of the other side's project. Um, but yeah, you're right. Even even things like Garbage Men, which are, you know, maybe it's a shitty job, but it's yet another example of a job that is completely necessary. It'll probably get automated eventually. So one day maybe this won't be as relevant of a topic. But in the meantime, it's very much you know a, a completely necessary uh, part of life that we all benefit from without even thinking about it. Absolutely. And so, like, all of these virtues, all that society relies upon, they, you know, they, they don't want to give credit where it's due. They don't want to say they're masculine mm-hmm. virtues. And thus, you know, movies that will, like, inevitably uh, draw the line, the link between the virtues and the toxic behaviors, the, you know, the inappropriate uh, or, you know, uh, uh, negative results of aggression, overconfidence. Uh, they, 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 they don't, they can't allow these types of movies to come out because they will, you know, uh, they will insist that there is such a thing as a masculine virtue, which cannot really be allowed. But we do see pushback from this. We do see, you know, on our side of the internet. And I think we were discussing, um, particularly that line from uh and you know some people think he's a little reddit but uh jordan peterson saying that in in order to be a good man you have to be capable of being a monster and yes i think we both agree that there's just a lot to that Definitely. By the way, do you know where he said that? It's such an interesting quote. Should I? I don't. I, I'm sure he yeah, said it I, like a bunch of times. So. Well, you know, there's people. People sometimes say with Peterson, or I saw it said recently that you know when he was a when he was a university professor, he said fascinating stuff, and now that he has a world audience, he somehow just can't really put anything beyond platitudes out. Best thing to hear or there. He must have said it somewhere, but yeah, it was before Twelve Rules for Life. It, it was, you know, and perhaps the what it was perhaps the golden age of Peterson. Um, it's a it's a phenomenal quote. Uh, it's one of those examples where you know you occasionally see the notion that uh, someone like Bronze Age pervert or the manosphere generally is the subtext to to Jordan Peterson. I think there's something to that. I, I will always defend uh, Peterson, not. Um, Again, I, I haven't even read his last book, Twelve Rules for Life, is mostly pretty trite. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's clear that whatever philosophic disposition he's coming from, some of the positions he takes, uh, the, 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 you know, it, it's, uh, they run deep. There's a, there's, a, you know, there's a deep running water there uh, to some source of, of wisdom. And again, I always go back to, lo and behold, uh, you know, Camille Paglia, uh, you know, one of my intellectual heroes, um, you know, has said positive things about his first book, Maps of Meaning. Uh, and it, yeah, it's clear that he's in, you know, for lack of a better term, very based just on some of these matters of, um, yeah. I don't even put it, I guess psychological matters, but that doesn't seem to get to the heart of it. He is a psychologist. But, you know, having to do with topics like nature and masculinity and what what nature and masculinity and the way the world really works kind of beneath the sort of ideological or moral surface. Um, you know, Peterson's a visionary yeah. into that. And, and this quote, perhaps more than any other, um, really, you know, is, is, a, is tremendous. 
Uh, and yeah, you know, when you think about that in the context of a movie like In the Company of Men or, or even American Psycho, um, it throws it into relief. I mean, these are movies which uh, re- really you know, exemplify totally toxic characters, uh, you know, characters who would be condemned morally um, by, by any, pretty much any society. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it's evident that there's a certain charisma uh, to both, to, you know, to both of those characters, um, and yeah, it's just evident that there is a a masculine, you know, perhaps somewhat autistic energy that that it's completely evident is not only responsible for atrocity but also for all of the cultural products and civilizational developments uh, that we cherish the most. Yeah, yeah, and. I think crucially, the, the the quote you know you you have to be able to be a monster before you can be uh, good. It um, it illustrates the concept that you um, that if you are not capable of aggressive violence of uh, of anti, if you're not capable of defending not defending of you know attacking others of being yeah. rapacious then are you then then it arises there arises a question are you really good because like okay you're good but you really couldn't be bad you really you're not you're not strong enough to be bad you're right not, you're, it's, it's, it's you're not a weak. choice you're just you're not good you're weak and exactly yeah i mean it's it's very easy to be a conformist it's very easy to just sort of go along uh you know all power to people who are getting married and having children and all that but it it's not enough to simply just do that because it's an avenue that's available to you you have to cultivate you know (laughs) not to sound like another manosphere coon or something i know it's kind of (laughs) par days for uh for this kind of talk, but you have, yeah, you have to cultivate, um, that kind of power in yourself. You have to, um, you know, f- find the time, find the space to, to cultivate that kind of power, whether physically, uh, you know, it, by lifting and all of that, but, um, but mentally and intellectually as well. Um, yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And to bring it back to, uh, in the company of men, really see it in the characters of uh howard and chad because uh howard you know like undeniably he is you know if you're gonna go by like who um who professes you know ultimately to you know embrace moral virtue that's howard because he he disavows the plot He's, you know, he's like, you know, confesses to her. He, you know, he's he's mad at Chad for, you know, even doing this. And but you you walk away from the movie, and you don't really feel that Howard is good. You feel that no. he's weak. he's weak. You might feel bad for him. You might relate to him, but you don't feel that he's morally good. In fact, what you feel is not to get too philosophical and Nietzschean here. But what you feel is to the extent that he makes appeals to morality, like, oh, I'm a good guy, I'm a nice guy, as opposed to Chad, you get the sense that he is using morality uh, and this, these, the, these common sense uh, or these day-to-day, these quotidian notions of a good and a bad guy, uh, he's using it as a moral veneer for his weakness, in fact, 
Whereas Chad, you know, I'm not going to morally praise him, but at the very least, you know, he doesn't have any weakness to justify morally. He is, um, you know, just embodying an amoral masculinity, as we talked about. Uh, and again, not to go on too much of a philosophical or Nietzschean tangent, but uh, the way to think of this is that, you know, masculinity as a, as a, is a, as a force of nature, uh, you know, that you can embody as a man, um, it, you know, is in and of itself amoral and, you know, morality in a positive sense, uh, you know, civil, these civilizational niceties in a positive sense uh, are meant to channel that masculine yeah. energy to to the highest precipice, uh, you know, and to to bring out, you know, for what is for whatever agreed upon, you know, for whatever reason agreed upon as like the greater good, um, you know that that is a masculine morality. But what you get from a character like Howard, and you know, it's relatable. I'm not saying that I'm super alpha man myself, and that I haven't been guilty of of that kind of appeal to being a nice guy type of thing in my life but uh but basically what you get what you get there is um you know you know finding different ways yeah to justify weakness if he had been able to be chad he wouldn't be talking about morality you wouldn't be talking he wouldn't be like oh this was he would have you know he would have done probably done what chad did and so let's you know let's look at what what chad actually did and you know, there's like obviously, you know, there's he um, hatched a plan to uh, destroy the, you know, the psych- the mind of his boss and the self esteem of his boss, and and used some random woman as you know cannon fodder as you know a casualty of war. But um, well, let's let's look at it from a little bit of a more nuanced perspective. He he has a wife. I think he has children. Mm-hmm. And um, well, the, the outcome of this is he got a promotion and he's in bed with his wife and he's like, you know, he's obviously yeah. very nice to her. And you, so, like, he's good at being a man and he right. used that to secure material benefit for him, which he will, you know, give to his family. And, you know, it there is certainly a case to be made that it is you know it's it's morally good to be good to everyone but on a more primal level there is a certain you know moral uh, goodness that uh, you know if it only extends to family it only extends to those closest to you well at least you did that at least you secured the bag right. for your family exactly no and, i mean yeah you see that with men even uh like like Trump, I don't want to valorize him too much, but you know, th- there's another example of a man who has very good relationship with. Yeah, there's, there's a guy who definitely secured yeah. the bag. <laughs> there's a guy who definitely secured the bag. Um, yeah, no, no, there's something to that. Um, nature and by extent, just reality. Uh, you know, society as something that is not totally free from nature, but you know. Reality itself, perhaps, or, or um, you know, it, it rewards that kind of masculine behavior, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, the the last frame, if I'm not mistaken, the last frame in um, in the in the company of men is Chad's expression as his, I think, his wife is like going down on him. Yes, yeah, I remember. That. <laughs> so yeah, uh, like like reward. Howard leaves, 
yeah, Howard leaves, and then she's like, "Oh, who are you? Ta- who are you talking to?" And he's like, "Oh, just some guy, some loser from stop by." And then she's like, uh, "You know, I'm horny and uh, sucks him up, and we see his expression." So, a uh, very concrete example of um, just some loser of his ultimate reward, you know, and th- th- that is that movie uh, reflects life, you know, that kind of behavior uh, is rewarded, um, you know. Yeah. The, the man who 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 who's willing to go to that length and to exhibit, um, you know, that level of power to get what he wants will get what he wants. What he chooses to do with what he you know what he wants, maybe that's where the morality comes in, uh, or or maybe that's what maybe that's a more appropriate place to impose morality. You know what 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 should be done with power once it is had, but. Uh, the, the the you know the, the the original masculine urge, um, you know to to exert your will, um, that is you know that that's something that precedes any morality and that can uh, so lead you to 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 acts both depraved and uh, and noble. Yeah, there's loyalty to the group. But, um, you know, there's that, you know, there's always a tension with loyalty to yourself and to, you know, your family unit. And so um, there's, it's an interesting kind of concept because Donovan in The Way of Men, one of his, you know, uh, masculine virtues is honor. And so like someone who dishonors his commitments to his fellow men in in the tribe, his gang, like that is well that's you know if you break honor you're not uh you're not embodying one of those masculine virtues yet undeniably and like there's an argument that chad was you know breaking masculine honor by scumbagging his boss because they're like they're in a sort of tribe a corporate tribe but um it doesn't really feel like he's, you know, not being masculine (laughs) it uh there's I, i think honor is probably the weakest of the masculine virtues, and it's it's a kind of weird thing to say, but like you're you're really not gonna. And this is why people why it always ranks so hollow when people are like, "Well, Trump's not a real man because he's dishonorable," and it's like, ah, uh, yeah, but there's still something like really manly about like being like, "No, nah, I'm gonna get mine," and oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the big, like, I guess, for lack of a better term, red pills while reading Jack Donovan, I remember uh, just memorably um, talking about, like, how you may not agree with what the characters do in The Godfather, but would you really say they're not real men? And it kind of underscores the absurdity of imposing any of the more feel-good moral sentiments on masculinity. I think that there's tenets of masculinity which are different ways of exhibiting strength. And I think at times honor can be a way of exhibiting strength. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, but transgressing that, you know, just because we don't like what someone does doesn't make them any less of a, of a man. Um, yeah. You know, I'd yeah. say there's almost like in a weird way, like a pass if you are you know securing the bag for yourself or something it's kind of like well did you really expect the guy not to backstab you like maybe if you're like brothers maybe if you're like yeah but if you're just kind of like teammates and someone has the chance to like pull a big win like yeah i i don't think that that's really like you know 
it's it's the it's the weakest of masculine. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's the right. the new episode title: "The Weakest of the Masculine Virtues." Honor. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We're against honor. <laughs> We're against honor. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could also look at that in terms of the other sort of theme in 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 the company of men, which would be a more leftist friendly interpretation, which is that it's about capitalism in some kind of way about how this is what gets ahead um you know in in a capitalist society in the business world i don't personally buy that because i think it has a lot more to do with economics i think it 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 gets to the very heart of the matter of what it is to to be a man and to exist in society but uh you know what what they'd say what uh, a i don't think it's leftist because i think it's a valid line of interpretation uh but it's leftist friendly shall we say would be that um, there is no tribe in, in in the business world. Um, you know, you are always uh, securing the bag ultimately for yourself, and um, you know, companies are not real tribes. In short, that that's you know, they're atomized individuals yeah. uh, competing, maybe forming temporary alliances. Um, but I guess to sort of start to bring this all full circle, I mean, again, that that New York Times piece that we started talking about ends with you know men need to uh to to give up the urge to dominate and uh you know so give up that the masculine urge to dominate shall we say and uh you know you have movies like in the company of men which where that masculine urge to to dominate for its own sake is kind of explored as this toxic thing but also i think the other side to our argument is that um you know that masculine urge to dominate is also, you know, in, inexplicably linked uh, toward toward the virtues of masculinity and toward certainly to creativity as well, um, and to uh, you know the the Peterson quote of it all: uh, without the ability to be a Chad or to be a Patrick Bateman, uh, you're not going to have the ability to to be a truly great man. And I think that's kind of our ultimate thesis. Um, but and again, it's not something that. All of these, I guess, well-meaning attempts on, you know, the part of the New York Times op-ed section to, um, to you know, find, to, to just start to, to figure out the problem. What is wrong with the boys? You know, why are they dropping out uh, until they can uh, at least, you know, at least give, give some weight to that alternative position? Um, I don't think they're going to get very far. And to bring it back to our original mission statement... It's time for um, a return to the artistic masculine to have movies like in the company of men back in the, you know, in the the public discourse. And, um, you know, I, I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon in like on Netflix or, you know, in, you know, the mainstream, but, um, yeah, we, uh, Frog Twitter and uh, you know various esoteric uh, spaces on the the internet are producing really good content, and um, we're uh, we're we're trying to um, get it out there. Right. Say. Yeah. Certainly, we're going to. Certainly, we at least have this podcast as a space to talk about this, and that's I think the first step. You know, is to create the space where people can talk about it, where people can listen. Um, and you know give us feedback uh because again it's not something that is 
it's not something you're going to find in the New York Times op-ed section. Um, you know, these basic realities, <laughs> in this case, about what it is to be a man, um, are, are increasingly, you know, forbidden topics, and we need to keep the torch of... Before, before we even, you know, carry forth the torch of, like, actually exerting, you know, masculinity, just the mere existence of it and... Uh, you know, not to forget about that is, is, you know, the first torch that we must carry. Reclaiming the literary holy land. From the heathen. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I think that's a good sign. I think so. All right.